John Sergusa. How was your nap? Oh, I had a really good nap. I nailed it today. Nailed it. And you know, it's funny, I thought of you twice. It's always two things with you. Second thing is, I took a nap. I'm molested by your expectations. Was it a tool-assisted run? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, I scoped it. Uh, but that was preceded by a delicious Italian sandwich. It made me think of you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw a... Uh, I, I, I watch a lot of cooking YouTube channels, mm-hmm. and one yeah. of them was... Uh, I don't know how to describe this one. Uh, dude, single dude living alone shows you how to cook stuff. I don't know. Like, uh-huh. actually, he doesn't live alone. He's got a roommate, but he, he's just a guy like in his 20s or something with like a, a hipster mustache and beard who's into food. And he just, you know, says, here's how I make this. Here's how I make that. And he did a whole show on just how to make. Uh, I mean, I don't know what people call it these days, but how, how to make what I would call, a, you know, an Italian hero sandwich. Oh, uh, God, I crave the thing I crave the most is a chicken sandwich, but the thing I, I crave almost as much is like what I would call a hoagie, but yeah, and it's some kind of an mm-hmm. Italian-ish thing with yeah, oh, a hoagie God. sub hero, whatever, whatever you call it. Um, yeah. But like the, the the angle of the video was um, when you get one at like your favorite place, it's really good, but then you come home and it, presumably you have the exact same ingredients. Why can't, why does the one you make at home taste so bad? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did he come up with a, a hypothesis? I mean, he just, showed you how to make one like it's if you if you here's what if you've never seen one made like maybe if you're not if you're not from new york and don't see the person behind the counter of the deli actually making it for you you may be surprised what is included because if you make it at home and you get bread probably you're gonna get the wrong bread to start but anyway you get bread and then you get some cold cuts and you slap them on there and you uh-huh. eat it and you're like oh what's what's this like it seems like because when you people order it they're like oh i want it with this set of cold cuts and okay but maybe did i just forget lettuce and tomato and then you add lettuce and tomato. you're like no still doesn't taste right like people just don't actually know how to make them they just know how to order them so yeah there was no secret it was just you have to include all the ingredients i i think there is uh listen by the way i don't want you talking about backpacks back acts for an hour we got to get to college this is the perfect week to do college do we mm-hmm. agree yep I agree. okay okay good we do have some good follow-up but um I think the, I've, I've almost definitely said this here before, but I do think there are these classes of foods where it's almost always better from the outside world versus almost always better when you make it yourself for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is travel time. There's some kinds of foods that just don't travel well, even like when you're just bringing it home. Um, I've heard many podcast episodes about the problem with French fries. This is, this is a huge deal. They're actually trying to do different things with uh, shout out to Darth, trying to do different things with potatoes at this point because there's a lot of demand for French fries, but like anybody can tell you a one-minute-old French fry from McDonald's is very different from a 10-minute-old French fry from McDonald's. But I also think that, I mean, my best example of this off the dome is burritos, where we like taco night, we like burrito night, because it's another one of those, you know, make it how you want it things, but a, a burrito from like, you know, a a taqueria is is just a very good burrito. I think what you're talking about here, and you're the Italian here, is that I think I think the uh, like you might get the oil wrong, you, the toppings wrong. You might you certainly, yeah, it could be the wrong kind of you know uh, cold cuts. But I bet that's part of it. Is that a lot of that is not stuff you just have around the house to make something that tastes authentic. Speaking of hoagies, uh, I don't know if this is a, an import from Philadelphia per se, but hoagies were big in Cincinnati. And to me, it's not a hoagie if it doesn't smell like bo. If it doesn't smell like BO, you're not there yet. It, it should smell almost like a locker room. Otherwise, it's a different kind of sandwich. 
Where do you think that smell is coming from? Because I'm not, I, I, I'm not be able to place the bo that you think you are smelling. So what are you, what are you actually smelling on the sandwich? Uh, I mean, I'm not a hoagie expert, but I would say the whatever kind of like an oil and vinegar. And I've tried to make this at home. I've tried different recipes for this. Usually for me, red wine vinegar with oil and then some fresh herbs. Uh, I think that's where it comes. I think it's the, probably the vinegar combined with the herbs. What do you think? Do you, you disagree? You don't think a hoagie smells like a pit? I mean, I'm just trying to think of what you're placing. Like a vinegary smell, I can definitely see where you could think that is sort of a BO type thing. I was just wondering if there was some ingredient on a, an authentic Cincinnati hoagie that had uh, no. more of a BO smell that I wasn't aware of. No, it should be. To me, it should be on whatever that flattish bread is. And we should we should have uh, you know somebody from Philadelphia here to talk about this. But uh, I think it should be that bread is usually smashed pretty small. I think of a hoagie as not being like overstuffed with things. It's a, it's, it's, it's something you can fit into your mouth. You know, do you call it, do we, what do you, what do you, do you call that a hero? What do you call that in yeah, uh, on I, Long Island? When I grew up, it was a hero. Mm-hmm. Here's and, what I had today. And I also, I just I don't want you talking about this for an hour because we've got other stuff to do. But I want to tell you about this sandwich that I've gotten twice this week because I like it so much. It's right in my wheelhouse. Okay, here it is. And I do want to discuss the name of this place because I don't like the name. The name of this place upsets me. Okay, this is called The Italian. It's spicy. <laughs> that's funny how. Go ahead, because that's a bad sign. Go ahead. Well, there's one called Italian ham and cheese panini. But the one I get is called Italian. And that's the name of the sandwich. That's what it's called. It's, it's, it's sandwich at birth. Assigned sandwich at birth. Spicy mm-hmm. asoprasata. Oh, salami, mortadella, prosciutto di parma, which sounds costly, <laughs> mozzarella, pepperoncinis, sun-dried tomatoes, and that's served on a uh, Giamatti roll. What you call ciabatta. And, and it's, it's so good. It's the perfect mix. And you know what really makes it, in this case, this Italian? Uh, it's, I think it's the sun-dried uh, tomatoes. They, see, it reminds me almost like, you ever had a muffaletta? Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, the olive that's mm-hmm. to me made by the olive, uh, paste, I guess, or whatever you Tapenade call it. Kind of. You know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. But this boy, this is a real good sandwich. And so what I did was I had one of those and then I laid on the couch and, uh, I read my RSS feeds and took a nap. It's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned travel time and mm-hmm. foods that are better out when they're not, because one of the tips from this video, which I finally did find the link for, uh, which I think is a good one, although hard to implement in practice, is that one of the reasons uh, a good, you know, Italian hero from a, or, you know, New York deli sandwich tastes the way it does, aside from the ingredients and construction and all that other good stuff, is that they wrap it up for you in a piece of wax paper and then you take it in your car and you drive it to wherever you're going to go. You bring it back to the people who you were buying it for or whatever. And that travel time of the sandwich being tightly wrapped in wax paper and spending some time there. It's really steaming. Does actually let, steaming. It's not steaming because it's not hot. This is cold. Um, oh. <laughs> but it does let the flavors and the ingredients sort of marry together and sort of fuse into a cohesive shape and arguably eating it with the wax paper partially on it holds it together when you it's kind of like eating a burrito out of the, yeah, the foil no, I get thing it. i get it right mm-hmm. and that actually is an important part because if you make it at home you're never going to do that you're like i made the sandwich it's ready to go i bite right into it it's but every time you get it from the deli down the street they wrap it up for you in wax paper and you take it in your car and you drive and that becomes part of the experience i think oh, kind of like day, kind of like day old lasagna is a little bit mm-hmm. better than when it's fresh I think yeah. an Italian hero that's been wrapped up in wax paper and stayed there for a little bit, not like 24 hours, but like 
15 minutes, yeah, even maybe yeah. 20 minutes, is actually better. Yeah, because you, you don't want to, I mean, at home you're having a fresh, fluffy sandwich that looks like a Publix commercial. And in this case, it's all uh, smashed down good. Um, it's interesting you should say that, though, because, um, uh, and I'll tell you about the name of this place in a second. You're probably going to think it's fine, but they um, they also have homemade um, potato chips that my wife adores and I merely really like. And the reason I merely really like them is they're a little bit Hawaiian kettle-y, but they're not super crunchy. And I need to go eat this at the place because I wonder if sitting in an automobile... <laughs> I don't know why you keep saying that word. Automobile for 15 minutes. Uh, and it's I think it's a warm sandwich. It's not a hot sandwich. I like a piping hot sandwich. I like a mouth meat sandwich. I like one that's so hot it would burn me. But anyway, I wonder if that softens up the chips a little bit, but they're very, very good chips. Can I tell you the name of this place? Sure. I want to stipulate, this is a very good restaurant. This is one of the rare restaurants uh, that everyone in our family really likes. And the, the, this is very, I don't know how this is. In our, in our house, it's pretty unusual to have a place on the reg that all of us really like. Uh, and we like different things. And in many cases, we like more than one thing. This place has good wings. They got good meatballs. They got lots of things. Anyway, the name of this place, I, I like this restaurant, okay? No shade, no lemonade. It's called Little Original Joe's. I mean, they couldn't decide, so they went with both. Well, like, I'm thinking of the bit about pizza places that everybody knows, the bit. Okay, but like, I, I understand how you get to Little Joe's. I understand mm -hmm. how you get to Original Joe's. I don't understand how you get to Little Original Joe's. Once you've gotten a certain number of Original Joe's, you need to distinguish them. But why is he little? No, this is the Little Original Joe's. Maybe there's a bigger Original Joe's around the corner. Now, in Florida, at least where I'm from, you especially pizza places, you will just add the Roman numeral two mm. or three to something. So you might have, uh, you know, like I told you, the pizza place I worked at briefly in 1986 was called uh, Besta One. <laughs> B-E-S-T-A space O-N-E. It's racist. Mm -hmm. we got, all, all the guy had was one uh, eight-track of uh, Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic. Prejudice against Italians, can you believe it? Buy an Italian. Age. Buy an Italian. He had a, he, he had a medallion and everything. Before we move on and we will move on, I do want to, to say one thing about uh, Italian hero sandwiches, which is kind of, this is kind of a shame. Um, and, uh, you, uh, you've heard, if you heard me on podcast, you've heard me be a New York food snob many times. Like, oh, the, whatever it is, whatever huh. regional New York food I miss, <laughs> they don't make it. it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't make anything else. Uh, they yeah. don't make it like that anywhere else in the yeah, country. Bagels, you can only get yeah. good pizza and bagels in New York, right? So here's mm -hmm. the thing with Italian hero sandwiches or subs or hoagies or whatever you call them. Uh, setting aside like the regional specific things, like obviously Philly cheesesteaks and places with their own hoagies and stuff like that. In general, across the entire country, uh, you can't find a good Italian hero. But unlike pizza and bagels, there's not really a reason for that. There is nothing. Un yeah, again, unlike pizza and bagels, there's nothing particularly special or that needs to be investigated or differentiated about mm -hmm. an Italian hero sandwich that couldn't be reproduced pretty much anywhere because the ingredients are mostly commoditized, nationally available things. It's ham and cheese on bread with stuff. Well, maybe the exception of the bread, you might have some difficulty finding good bread in your area. But in general, like the cold cuts aren't made on site there. Like, if you just get Boris Head cold cuts, which are available nationally, you'll be fine. Like there's no there's no secret to that. And when it comes you look at the ingredient list, you're like you can get all this stuff in the supermarket. You know, you can get 
all the different cuts of meat. You can get lettuce. You can get oil. You can get vinegar. Yeah. You can get, you know, all like, you can get that stuff there and you just got to get some good bread. And it's just a matter of technique. So it's such a shame that when most of the country thinks of what I'm th- calling an Italian hero sandwich, they think of Subway, which is an abomination. I think we can all agree where all the quote unquote meat is made out of turkey and everything tastes bad. I mean, I'm not going to say or, I'm not going to say everything tastes bad, but it doesn't taste the way an Italian hero sandwich is supposed to taste. Not you even need, close. You need to think of it as going to Subway. If you think of it as going to Subway, if you right. have to catch yeah. a plane and you think of it as going to Subway, that is fine. I, th- or I taco, think like Taco Bell, right? Mm, I think Taco Bell is better than uh, Subway. Uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm comparing it to like your good burrito places versus yeah, no, going no, to Taco Bell. No one yeah. is confusing those two things, despite no, the fact yeah, that they're, correct. you know. Yeah. No, so nobody's anyway, gonna, I, nobody's gonna put uh, like a taco inside of a taco with <laughs> like uh, you know because because Taco Bell for the longest time Taco Bell those those you know those those horrible KFC Taco Bells like the one we have it's just like we have these eleven ingredients what things can we make uh-huh. let's buy bowls and call it a famous bowl yeah I mean, and and setting aside fast food just like in general it's it's hard to find a good Italian hero or sub sandwich that's not from a chain if you're just like throw a dart at the United States like wherever you are. And as like I said, unlike pizza and bagels, where there is an art and a technique and, and it's kind of a specificity to how they're made, anyone anywhere in the United States that has access to a supermarket can probably make at home a pretty good Italian hero sandwich. They can call it whatever they want. Watch this video. It has basic instructions. If you follow them, you will be more or less successful. Unlike all the videos that try to tell you how you can make your own bagels or pizza at home, if you try that, you will probably fail. Yeah, that's a project. That's what Merlin Man will call a project. That's a thing. That's going to be a journey. That's not a thing where you buy some ingredients and borrow a pizza stone. And I mean, yeah. look at Gus, man. Talk about a journey. Oh, yeah, I mean, because I mean, the thing about the Italian here sandwich is, uh, it's a cold sandwich. Everything there's no cooking. It's all no, it's assembly. Yeah. It is sourcing and assembly, right? Yep, and so that's yep, part yep, of yep. cooking. But you know, pizza, it's like three ingredients, and you're like, how can I screw this up? Well, just try it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um. We should probably talk about your follow-up, but there was something I was going to say. Oh, and yeah, I made a really good French tip last night. And I also wanted to recommend that, you know what, never mind. Um, I, I discovered this weekend, I discovered Conan O'Brien's videos with his associate producer, Jordan Schlansky. And for some reason, I can't help but recommend this to you. And people out there will probably bug you to say you really should watch this. Conan has this associate producer and they do bits. It's, it's a bit, but it doesn't feel like a bit. And Jordan is this hilarious, like health conscious, incredibly taciturn person who in the bit has absolutely no affect. He's a huge Star Wars fan. He's obsessed with Italy and he's obsessed with uh, finding like non, uh, like, like non-maltodextrin ingredients. He's very, very particular about it. And uh, there, there's a part of me that thinks, that, I know you don't like to laugh, but you might think they're funny. They're on YouTube. You could look up uh, Conan and, and Jordan and... Uh, they're very, very funny. You should get a link, a link for that for the notes, please. Yes. Did you put yours into the CMS or did you just paste it in there for me to take I care of I paste it in you? the doc. I go to the CMS after. It's doc for a stock. Did you, see, did you look at production area. notes? Did you look at production notes at all? Uh, sure. I see it now, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. I want to put them in the doc first. Doc first. It better show up in that CMS or I'm going to be frustrated. <laughs> they always do. I get them in there. They sometimes do. They recently do. I think you've taken pity on me because of my stressful Thursdays and I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But I I, w- I would like you to start using the CMS. I do. That's how they get in there. I put them there. When when you put them in, if I haven't already done it, because you did, you paste them into the dock. And again, this is like, this is, why don't you just put your briefcase in front of the door or just mm-hmm. not have a briefcase? 
Mm-hmm. Why don't they make the whole podcast out of the show notes? <sighs> Little original Joe's. <laughs> Little original Joe's three. Oh, you know, the one out on 5A Road. See, this is another thing. We've got best of one. We also have 5A Road. And can I just tell you, it's not what you think. It's F-I-V-A-Y Road. No, that's bad. That's really bad. Well, it's that's namespace like that, pollution. That's like that, uh, what, that McSweeney's article about uh, email addresses that would be hard yeah. to uh, give someone <laughs> over the phone. underscore <laughs> at Hotmail. Dot, you, yeah. can't do, you can't do it as a spoken joke in a podcast because so much of it is visual. Now we need to find that for the show. I know, but, but I can refer to it. I'm doing you. I'm doing bullet points that will help people recognize the joke. Yeah, pattern recognition, control backslash. This is joke. See, now I'm doing the Conan part and you're the Jordan here. Boom, look at that. Appearing in the doc. All right. Well, <laughs> the, don't put it in the, the funny... doc. Put it in the CMS. I, just, if you go look I, under production I, notes, bullet bullet I, only. Episode, I, I episode is staged in the CMS, semicolon, okay to add links. If you click on where it says stage in the CMS, mm-hmm. okay, it, you'll, in, you'll, that'll see where I, you can see where I command K'd and then I added a link to, to where the links are. And you have but, uh, a, I know you have I, a bookmarklet. It's somewhere in your tabs, John. When I, when I add links, it's more than just putting in, like I, I oh, there's a lot of clean up the Wikipedia title and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do all the things. You have a process. You're, you're happy to let other people take care of that for you though. No, I do it myself. So it gets you done do right. You do that. You try to make it right. Like a sandwich. Mm-hmm, exactly. I made a French dip last night. I had leftover a steak and I made, I made a, uh, I made a French dip. It was really good. And I, I made my own bespoke sauce. With uh, with uh, horseradish, like spicy by itself horseradish, with creamed horseradish. I added a little bit of mayo and I added some uh, some authentic brown mustard to that, and it was magnifique, as you say in Sicily. Sounds good. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com/slash. Diffs. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and to run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace has got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and you use very simple, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools to make that site into your own. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale, all this and more with just a few clicks and, and maybe a couple drags, if we're being honest. It's so easy to use. All Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile, so your content automatically adjusts to look great on any device or dingus. It's really true. You get free, unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. Nothing to patch or upgrade ever, never. They have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you need any help. And they'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Now, now a pro tip for you, I really recommend a unique domain name. If you get a non-unique domain name, you're, you're just going to be pushing a rock at that point. Let Squarespace help you with that. You know, it's Squarespace. Get everything you need. SEO, email marketing, everything you need to get your ideas out there. Build a beautiful website. Showcase your work. You can have a blog or publish other kinds of content. Beautiful image galleries promote your business or an upcoming event, whatever it is you want to do. You know, if you will it, it is no dream. Uh, I'm a big fan of Squarespace. I am a user of Squarespace. I am a, I don't know, an evangelist for Squarespace. I really recommend it. It's the go-to site. If I ever need to get anybody onto the web, that's the place to go, you know, to, to, to have your own thing. So do me a favor right now. Would you please go 
head over to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. And you're going to get a free trial. Listen, relax. There's no credit card required. When you're ready to launch, use that very special offer code diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That'll save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And it will show your support for John Syracuse. Squarespace.com slash diffs. Offer code diffs for 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Um, John, um, hi, everybody. I'm John's Little Monkey, and this is episode 161 of the Reconcilable Differences podcast. And uh, John, I understand uh, you have some follow-up to share with the class. Sure. I, I love this name. This is I love this name. Robert this, this guy. This guy should produce, he should produce a, a King Kong. Yeah, it's, it's very. Uh, yeah, it's one I'm of, the, one of the, the happy accidents of when there's someone famous with your last name who's generally uh, thought well of, or you know, or is famous in a, in a positive way. Let's say, and then suddenly your name gets a little bit classed up. Anyway, this was a follow up to you trying to remember. Like if your name was like Marcus Versace. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Wasn't, there, wasn't there a murder involved there? I don't know. Marcus. Um, <laughs> this is someone trying to you were trying to remember the name of some text format and i wasn't able to help you with it did. Did. if you go back if you roll back i actually did say this word all right well then yeah it was in there it was ping pong but i didn't know it so i didn't snatch it when it bounced out of the uh the ping pong ball yep keep your head on a swivel yeah lottery machine yeah ping ping pong ping pong lottery machine yeah that's very racist john no, like you're, like you're talking the, about the pachinko. Big, the big ball thing. With, the big ball with the thing, the big sorting, the baby sorting box, you're saying. Yeah. That is my brain. Yeah. Anyway. L- or listener you, Robert D- De Laurentiis. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. Uh, the name of the format, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, because in the internet, when this came out, we were all reading things and not speaking them, so no one knows how it's actually pronounced. Anyway, Setex. S-E-T-E-X-T. Setex? Setext? Setext. Setext. Yep. Anyway. That is the format that Roland was trying to remember. What I was trying to remember was what was the format for, well, what I was trying to remember really was what was the name of the website that published a digest that could be thrown into a reader. Um, Because I know set text from, well, now everybody these days does the Octothorpes for H's Mm in Markdown. But I I mean, some people for a long time preferred the set, set text, you know, like using dashes, I think it was dashes or equal signs. Yeah, little little underlines. And set, set text is nineteen ninety one. Markdown is two thousand four. So there's a big gap here. This is early days. You should check the CMS. You might find good things in the CMS if you look there. You might see that somebody else has taken the time before the show even recorded to add the proper links for these things to show you that uh, the that episode one hundred of Infomac was the one where they announced uh, in August of nineteen ninety two. They announced that they were going to be using the set text format. Yeah, I think it was according to the Wikipedia page. It was created for tidbits. Like maybe that was the, you know, created by Ian Feldman for use in tidbits. Oh, sorry, tidbits. I meant to say tidbits. But Infomac was the one I couldn't remember. Tidbits, correct. Yeah, Infomac think... was the big website with all the shareware stuff and the tidbits is a publication. Still running. Is that Adam Angst, I want to yep. say? Okay. Anyway, and there was a program called Easy View that was basically like a, a oh, viewer for this so format. So cool. So cool. What was the other thing? Oh, yeah. I didn't send this to you today because I, I don't, I only wake you for the important meetings, but there was a, um, in, <clears throat> there's a, there's an announcement on, Oh God! What was the what's the name of the site? What's the one that used to be the heavily mirrored? Infomac. No, no. Tibbets in new formats. A text. It's in the Wikipedia one, but it was. Um, this is really going nowhere at all. We. Um, oh yeah. So here we go. So text. Uh, lightweight markup language tidbits. Oh yeah, but there's a um, a link to 
Um, I should send this uh, sex information. Oh, it was on Hyper Archive, I want to say. Mm. Oh, sorry, SourceForge. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. SourceForge.net. And I will send this to you because this is, uh, you know, right in our wheelhouse in terms of RFC-like things. And uh, this is this, uh, this you know, it's not as, as beautifully rendered as a lot of RFCs, but this is uh, from uh, 16 August 1992 from Ian Feldman, who is uh, described here as the current set text oracle. I think he's the guy that made set text. Yep. Thank you for your interest in the set text format. Enclosed is an advance sheet that will remain in effect until the first public release of the format package around March uh, 1992. Mm, now delayed. Huh. Oh, I think there's some, some retcon going on here. Might be time zones. Anyways, yeah, yeah. And now, now um, I mentioned, I don't want to talk about this, but I was remembering back when, uh, when Dean added the ability for markdown formatting in tweets to be rendered unfavored. Dean's was text, textile right? Uh, can you give me a last name for Dean? Oh, sorry. The late Dean, Dean who did uh favored, uh, Dean, uh, Dean Allen. Oh God. How could I have forgotten his name? Oh, yes, it is Dean Allen. What a dear sweet French man. Um, Dean yeah, Cameron had, Allen, Canadian topographer. I always had the Orson Welles, you know, icon. Oh God. Do you remember how pretty his site was? <gasps> he was, he was way ahead of the curve on that kind of retro Minotrot style, like vintage kind of light, light brownish looking vintage site. Hmm. God, I'm already spacing on all of these things. What was the name of his goddamn site? He invented textile. He made favored. Dean, he lived uh, in France. Dean. Orson Welles from Third Man, Icon. Uh, he also did text pattern. Uh, oh, yes. Source, he did text management system. Gray, something, has something to do with gray matter maybe at some text point? Text drive. Uh, what is his website? It doesn't say. Hmm, I bet it's on archive.org. But um, yeah, it's funny though, because I when Markdown came along, uh, I was really interested in learning about Markdown because I had used textile before. And I think the neat thing about Markdown was that at the time was that, I mean, this is years before it became sort of a de facto, you know, standard subset of HTML where like a GitHub would have a, a flavor of it. But back in the day, I think textile was sort of more powerful, but it was more complex. Uh, you know, I think, I think Gruber's innovation was taking the, the best and simplest parts of a lot of these different markup ideas, you know? And making it real simple. Yeah. And all this stuff, like, you know, looking at set text from the, the 90s, it's like stuff that was in the internet culture, just rattling around in Usenet and just like people typing yeah. things. Asterisks and, for like, you know, yeah, emphasis. Or even from like bulletin boards going as far as like those, those are the graphics you had when you connected to a bulletin board, right? Just all that, you know, all we had was, you know, seven bit ASCII and we've got some kind of online thing. What can we do with it? So that was kind of in the culture and a lot of these. Things that popped out of the culture, set text, textile, restructured text, all that stuff, Markdown, is coming out of that stew, coming out of that cultural stew, right? That's why they all kind of like look like each other. It's like, wow, interesting that these people all had similar ideas. Like, they, you know, these weren't their mm -hmm. ideas. This was the culture we were all soaking in. It was just a question of, like you said, figuring out what is the right subset of this and what is the right sort of philosophy. Like, I think the, I mean, uh, Gruber still pushes this about Markdown, and I'm not sure how many people sign up for it. Uh, in the to the degree that he does, but it does clarify what the difference is. Um, and it's that Markdown is meant to be readable by humans as is. Like it doesn't yes. have to be rendered for it to like, because there's lots of constructs in the more sophisticated languages that are awkward to read with your eyeballs. And you're like, well, but when it's rendered, like that's the whole point is it's a it's a plain text markup language. It's fairly compact, but don't worry that that's hard to read. Like when you see the rendered version, it will be fine. 
And despite the fact, that, as you noted, Markdown having a you know very straightforward mapping to HTML, the whole point was you could post it to, to Usenet and no one would bat an eyelash. They would read it and say, this is a well-composed post by a normal person with no knowledge <laughs> or expectation that it would need to be rendered because pretty much everything, but like that's like the footnote linking thing. Like that was a thing you did in Usenet to give URLs, right? Yes. And there's a reason that's still controversial, I think, is because, I mean, it is more... It's kind of, depending on how you look at it. This is a very Dr. Dran kind of thing to get hung up about. God bless him. But like you know, it, depending on how you look at it, there are some people who would consider it more readable to see it in parentheses right after the brackets because I know what the link is. But it does re, if you're just there for the text, having it all either at the bottom or I used to do mine after each paragraph could make it more readable. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the proof of that being the preferred format if you're not going to render it, or if it's not like, if it's not aimed at, I want to see a document so that I can be confident that when it becomes HTML, everything will be correct. Like that's a different use case. The use case here is I'm making Usenet posts to rec arts, you know, model mm-hmm. trains or something. And I want to reference links and I want to do a well-composed, well-sourced post. And the way everybody did that was essentially the ASCII copying of the sort of scientific paper or, you know, academic journal citation, which is with the footnote and the URL, because URLs are very long. And if you try to put them in line in a paragraph, it will interrupt the flow of reading. And that's why it supports the, the footnote format. And if you post, those footnotes were used all the time in Usenet. And so when Markdown came to support links, yes, it supported the inline ones because some people really want that. And again, if your use case is authoring and you're always going to render to HTML, it's arguably the better use case. But Gruber has always been insistent that that the, the Markdown is meant to be readable as is by human beings and not merely like HTML, a, you know, sort of a pre-compiled format that you chuck into a threshold right. machine and that it grinds out into the real format. Yeah, if you know enough about something, anything can seem readable. See, for example, your preferred scripting language. Um, scripting but, language, please. Well, that's what we call it. You're not that close to the metal, are you? That's not the distinction, but... Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, that, it it like, depends like, on whether it's pre or post compiled. Uh-huh. Yeah, all right. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think... Mm-hmm. Do you guys have underscores in Perl? Is that okay? Or does underscores mean something different? The, the, exa- the example I think I would give mm-hmm. was uh, HTML, which like, you know, I, I write in HTML, but I would never yes, pretend famously, that it is yes. a read- I would never pretend that it is a readable format. Like I would never present somebody with my HTML markup and say, now you may consume, right? Because it's not <laughs> meant to be consumed right. in that format. For me, uh-huh. authoring it, I can author it in that format just fine because, you know, I've spent my entire life doing it. But I would never say this is ready for consumption by humans. It has to be rendered, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I can speak to that. Uh, well, I mean, maybe this is the exception that proves the rule, whatever that means. But um, when I very first got like, you know, into into Markdown, it was, well, you know, let's just say another thing that was great about this was that so John had made the Perl script for turning uh, HTML into Markdown. I think it was Aaron Schwartz. Well, I know it was Aaron Schwartz, but I think he'd done a Python thing that would turn HTML back into Markdown. And I had those two command shift bracket. Left bracket and right bracket. Yeah, like you, I think you reversed that. You were trying to say that Gruber made the thing that would turn Markdown into HTML. Would turn Markdown into... The two of them together had made two different scripts that would allow you that you could turn into a service or do as whatever, or in my case, I did them in TextMate. They were just, you know, in TextMate. So, but, you know, because that's all I was ever editing stuff in. Uh, but it was just so great to be able to go back and forth. And I got really obsessed with Markdown. I was like, this is so cool. It's like, this is before I ever knew the guy. This is when he, it wasn't even that long after Daring Fireball started, but I really liked it. And I was on a mailing or a, uh, yeah, mailing list with some other folks about a thing that needn't be said. 
but it involved binaries. And um, I remember the first time I ever sent an email in which I used Markdown in the email. And I got so, I got, I got hassled so bad by everybody. They're like, what, who do you think, what are you doing? Who do you, what do you, what, do you, what is all of this? Like, what is it that you like sent us to some kind of like, you know, uh, ASCII salad bar with all of this stuff? What, what does all of this mean? I was like, oh, well, actually it's Markdown and it's a subset of HTML. That's blah, 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 blah. I never did it again. It's like the first time you send somebody a, uh, a PGP email and it looks like the most dangerous thing that they've ever received. It's not, it's not that bad, but I, the, the reaction you got is a shame, but I think it is indicative of like, despite uh, Gruber's intention and the design of Markdown, much of the world now views Markdown as a format that is the input to a thing that grinds out the one that gets consumed. Well, I mean, this was a, this was ner- some fairly, some people you know who are like fairly nerdy, and I think their preference would be plain text email. A far second would be HTML email, gross. Mm-hmm. And I think even further down would be, it's not even HTML. It's just a bunch. You've, yeah, I, you basically grabbed the, the, mis- yeah. the, the, uh, the, the Mrs. Salt and like of, uh, of punctuation and dropped it all over this email. It really depends on how steeped you are in that culture. Like from coming from Usenet, Markdown does not look alien to me. But if you've never seen anything like that, exactly, it looks like. Oh, I think I was too clever by a half knowing me. I probably did have like links at the bottom and brackets and numbers. Did you try to make a table with pipes? (laughs) I have an app that I purchased with money called Table Flip. And Table Flip, (laughs) I still use it several times a week. And it it turns, uh, it basically looks like a spreadsheet. You know, it looks like a pump. It feels like a sneaker. You put things in it like a spreadsheet and it makes a table and it tidies the table for you. You don't even need an extra service for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really it. I did Cardigan Industries. Was that the name of Dean's site? Anyway, look how pretty that graphic is. So tiny. Everything's so tiny in the old web. Everything was tiny on the old web, but I, I like his choices. That looks like maybe a courier. It looks like he's using, he's very, I, I feel like this was also a very, uh, we'll put this already, huh, I put it in the CMS already. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, this is a very, um, uh, uh, um, you know, field notes, Jim, a Jim, very Jim Kudal kind of look. Like Jim Kudal like makes times look good. There was a time when we were all kind of over times, especially because it made your term paper too short. But but what Jim did with like, God, the beautiful pages that he and his team would do, it would just be all times, but it looks so good. It always looks so fresh, you know? I miss the old web. It was fun. All right. One of my earliest, one of my, speaking of markup though, one of my earliest disappointments, I went, it was in a gopher hole looking around and I saw that there was an entire giant area called latex and, and it didn't have a, a single uh, photo of women uh, wearing rubber clothes. It was very that's upsetting because to me. That's because you were pronouncing it wrong. I pronounced it wrong when I was reading it. This is the thing. You described this about me. I lack the ears to understand latex. No, actually, I don't I don't actually know how you're supposed to pronounce LaTeX. the name. Uh, that is, I've heard that, but I don't actually know if that's true or just random, like... like classic is there a, classic is, internet, is it, is it, is I've a, only ever read this thing. Well, no, but I've read people arguing about how it's pronounced. But of course, the people arguing, I don't know how authoritative what they are. What is it besides LaTeX? What are that's, the other no, you're right. that's, that's what I've heard as the alternative, but some well, people do, of course, say latex. Some, some people say latex. Oh, I don't think that. No, I, I, that's no, that's nasty, John. I don't think. No. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, you can do latex and, and argue about where the emphasis is. Latex or latex. But yeah. But I mean, they should at least have like a section about like, I don't know, Jennifer Garner or something. Hmm. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Memberful. You can learn more about Memberful right now by visiting Memberful dot com slash diffs memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience and they're used by the biggest creators on the web 
generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You might have heard us talking about the Relay uh, FM membership program. Well, what you might not know is that Memberful is the platform that we are using for that very program. Thank you, Memberful. You make it super easy to generate some extra revenue and to deliver bonus content to your members. Maybe you're already producing content and relying on advertising or other means of income. Well, Memberful makes it easy to diversify that income with everything you need to run a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, private podcasts, and tons more, while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, your brand, and your membership. So if you're a content creator, Memberful can help you monetize that passion. And I can tell you from my own experience, our own experience, that Memberful uh, has been really helpful in making it easier for nice people like you to support the things that we do here at Relay. It's been great for us, and I think it might be great for you, so please check it out. You can get started for free right now. You go to memberful.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Relax. There's no credit card required. It's memberful.com slash diffs. You go there now and you check it out. Could be the start of something exciting. Our thanks to Memberful for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. We should get on to um, the... Um, the topic uh, that never ended. We never, we've, what, so it's, what are we talking about? Hey, welcome to uh, Reconcilable Differences. What are we talking about? Talking about college. College. Mm-hmm. College is, for is you. Is it college, college slash standardized testing? Yeah, well, they're all kind of tied up in each other. Like, maybe we won't get through Unfortunately, this whole, yeah. This whole topic today, but I mean, I figured we could start with us and see where that goes, but then eventually we'll, you know, your kid is a little bit farther off from college than my eldest, but... It sounds, it sounded like at some point you got to be in your bonnet because your kids are up against, or especially, I guess, your son. He's, he is starting to enter into the world of, like, more and more standardized testing that has um, consequences. No, we're, we're in the thick of it. He's got to start applying to schools. That's where he's at. No, that's no good. I won't have, I won't hear it. I will not hear it. It only occurred to me when we were recording Roderick on the line yesterday. It didn't occur to me until yesterday, Monday, July 12th of 2021, that my daughter is actually now at the age where she should be out cutting trail. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that? She's already 13. Yeah, Mm. I believe it. Mm. You grow up fast. Well, you go go anywhere you want. I have, uh, I want want to hear what what you have to say about this because you're, you're a good student, right? Yeah, no, I wasn't a good student. But like, well, I think, were you, I think okay, the, were you the, in advanced placement classes? Yeah, but okay, I was, I, like I was, I was bad at being a student for sure. Um, but like, the, I think the way into this is what I wanted to ask you and talk about is this is a problem because they're both old. But like, how do you remember conceptualizing college before you were in college? Like, I guess oh, you probably okay. don't. Maybe when you're very little, you think about it in some kind of abstract terms. So probably by the time you enter high school, it becomes less abstract. But what were your thoughts? about college, if at all, when you were kind of that age? Um, I mean, a series of, as I remember it now, <clears throat> we'll stipulate that we neither of us have good memories, but flashbulb moments, um, all the way back to not really understanding, you know, what what is, I, I understand like there's, you know, it's always hard to understand anyone, the ages of people who are older than you. Like when you're nine and you hear that somebody's 20, you think they're impossibly old. And when they're 20, you think 30 sounds impossibly old. And I did not have much conception of what education, I mean, I'm I'm not being dim. I mean, I know there's a thing called college, but when I was in elementary school, my concept of college was impossibly broad and based on very silly things. I certainly did have not have much conception other than the fact that I knew I liked I th- USC, 
I like the Trojan mascot. I liked their marching band. I liked their colors. And I liked that I knew that um, the Fleetwood Mac song Tusk had been recorded with their marching band. That's about how sophisticated, like, ooh, that seems like a place I'd want to go. Was it a given for you that you would go to college? Was that Absolutely just a, a foundational assumption? Nope. Not, not in any way, shape, or form. Especially Was it an as aspiration? Mm. I mean, I'll, I'll, I can get to that in a sec, but I'll, let me get past the boring stuff. So all I was going to say was like, okay, so my flashbulbs of earlier in life include dumb stuff like I like those uniforms and colors. But at, and then it became like Animal House, which was also a TV show. And I really wanted to uh, be in what I thought a fraternity was because you got to ride a motorcycle, you know, down the steps and stuff like D-Day was my favorite. Everybody else liked Bluto. I really liked D-Day. I thought D-Day was cool. Um, okay, but then at some point in that, um, that tender period, around the time I was thrown to the wolves of puberty, um, I became aware of older, so like my mom's friends who had older kids, that they were going to college. So like the college that my mom's really good friends, kids, all three went to was a place in Winter Park called Rollins, Rollins College. And that place just seemed amazing. Like I'd been on their campus they have pizza. It looked amazing. <clears throat> but really the first time when it started to feel even a little bit real and interesting and possibly interesting and a provocative, I might want to go to college way was, I guess what you'd call college fair, which is a bunch of people come into the cafeteria, you know, sit at a, caf- stand, sit at a cafeteria table and hand out literature and, you know, generate leads, I guess. That w- I think that, which would be 10th, probably 10th grade. 11th grade would be a little late 10th grade and this is we're not to the obviously we're not to the standardized testing thing that's a different thing at that point i probably would have taken the psats already but that was the first time and i remember (laughs) of all things seeing the beautifully printed john I'm, i'm so i'm so dim and shallow the beautifully printed oversized uh brochure for florida state university and there were a bunch of kids of different ethnicities sitting on steps like outside of a, a brick building. And that was the first time I was like, wow, you know, this seems kind of cool. And I started talking to my friend Sam's dad about, you know, where he'd gone to college. You know, he'd gone to law school in Gainesville, but he'd gone to liberal arts school at a small college in Sarasota. Um, that was that was most of mine. It was, but I mean, we're pretty simple people and we definitely didn't have money and we didn't have a plan. And even though my uncle was, my uncle, the, you know, the PNG vice president was pretty adamant about the need for what he described in 1981 as a liberal arts education plus a technical skill. The man was so far ahead of his time. He like, he got the mid to late nineties before, <laughs> before I did. Um, but no, he'd, he'd gone to, uh, gone to UC university of Cincinnati and, uh, was a big shot. Eventually moved to Memphis, uh, from Cincinnati. He's a big, big man in toilet paper title. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was mine. Now I'm guessing given your background, your family, it was much more preordained that you would be going to college. Yeah. I think your description sounds much more romantic, more appropriate as in college is a thing you became interested in. I mean, I setting aside, like the, I like the uniforms or whatever, but like with the fair of like, Hey, this, this appeals to me. I could see myself in this type of thing and it seems like a cool thing to do. So like you, it, like, you're it, could the one. Be, it could be a cool thing, but it was almost more like the beginning of uh, Pitch Perfect. It would be more like which, you know, once you're in college, 
and you go to all the different like student activities things, which one of these appeals to you? Do you want to work at the radio station? Do you want to be in the acapella group, et cetera? It was, it was about that level of sophistication for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying your, your view of it was accurate, but it was, there was your own, it was like intrinsic motivation. You were like, Hey, uh, college looks like it might be pretty neat. I should, you know, check that out. Uh, and you're right. And assuming that in my childhood, College was a thing that I knew I was required to go to in the same way I was required to go to elementary school. Like I was just never discussed and it was just part of my life and it was part of everybody's life that I knew in the same way that you never have a discussion with like other like four year olds saying, so you thinking about going to kindergarten or no? Yeah. Like everyone's going to go to elementary school. It's not an option for you. Or maybe even more of like, are you thinking about, have you given any thought to like learning how to tie your shoes? Yeah, like it was just compulsory, right? And, you know, and yeah. it made sense because, I mean, you know, obviously I didn't understand as a child that like it's like legally mandated. Education is legally mandated by the state up through whatever you're allowed to drop out of high school, depending on your state laws, so on and so forth. But it seemed... I think it's third grade in uh, Florida. <laughs> yeah, it varies by state. Like some of the <laughs> varies by county. Yeah. Um, but it seemed logical to me as a kid that like, well, if that's the case for these schools, surely it's the case for all of them. And so it's kind of like, well, of course you're going to college because everybody goes to college. Everybody I knew, like all my parents and all their siblings had gone to college. And I did eventually become aware that like my parents, I think, were essentially the first generation to go to college because the generation before them were, you know, either immigrants or born of fresh off the boat immigrants. And college was not in the picture for them. You know, right. just they... You know, there, there might like, not, there may not have been a suppressing number of colleges where they were welcome because Italian people only really became white not that very long ago. Yeah. And, and the jobs that that generation had when they became adults was like a police officer in the Navy, like just not college, <laughs> you know, like enforcer. Yeah. I think Bagman, like we had one of those. Bag like, <laughs> bag, like, little, little original Bagman. What, bag what opera, you, you know, haircutter, barber, right? Like it's not, yes. you know, they, yeah. Anyway, but. <laughs> But that, that aside, those were the old people. And who cares about the old people? Those like that's like, aha, times, you know, tales from the olden time. But, you know, <laughs> my, my parents all, you know, went to college and it was just assumed that all of them would go to college. And same thing with all the kids in my, you know, white affluent suburb. Like it was just assumed that we were all going to go to college. So I don't know if that's what led me to never have any interest in college because it was just like, like I didn't have any interest in middle school either, but I was going to go there. I didn't have any interest in high school, but I was going to go there. Oh, I, oh, okay. I, I didn't see where you're going. Okay. Whereas mine was much more an exercise in successful branding or successful brand mm -hmm. marketing. Yours right. was more like, I, I don't get a vote on whether this is going to happen. And so did that consequently mean you thought you didn't have much of a interest in like where that would be? It made me not think about it in the same way you don't spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to go into middle school and then high school. It's just a thing that's going to happen. Like you'd have no control over it. Wow. Right? Okay. That's All cool. Right, but but of course, as I, you know, I feel like as I got into high school, because once you're into high school, you see you're in the same building as people who are like, like your friends, like older. So you're in the you're you're aware of people who are going to college. The full court press is on and the guidance counselors, even at my provincial uh, school, were re really driving to the net on uh, what your future is going to be. And is it going to be college? And if it is, we have to have a lot of meetings about you know what you're what do they call it? Distribution requirements or like whatever they call it requirements to like, you know, be able to apply to the kind of school that you think you can get into. Yeah. It was especially for people in the, the gifted and talented as they called it in the day, like groups. Like, mm -hmm. It was part of the conversation of like the courses you might choose to take in high school could have ramifications in college. And then you're in the building with people who are seniors who 
go to college. Like you're in there and then like these people, we see them in the hallway now, but next year they're not going to be in this building. They're going to be in college. And so they're talking about what colleges they're going to, what colleges they're getting into. And all of a sudden now it's a real thing and it becomes clear. Not, you know, again, as you would say, not that I was dim, but like it becomes more real to you to understand. Oh, I have some say in what college I go to. There's not a compulsory college based on districting, right? I can, mm-hmm. I will have to, right. I will have yeah. to choose a college and I will have to choose a major, which is another mind blowing concept, given how structured my schooling was up to that point. Like there was no electives. I could choose Spanish or French. That was the elective of my entire education, K through 12, Spanish or French. I, I believe I had no other choices whatsoever other than, you know, getting good grades to get into the better classes. But like there were no like electives or things that you could choose. Uh, maybe, maybe I think I did take a computer elective like junior year high school. But anyway. It was Apple II, so it wasn't great. We played Flight Simulator and uh, chewed five-cent <laughs> gum. Um, <laughs> someone had a big bag. You know, do you know the gum I'm the talking about? That looks like I had an onion on my belt. Yeah. Now, do you know the, do you know the, uh, the bubble gum that look like little cylinders? Yep. Uh, right, like they Something uh, jif- Jiffy. I don't know the brand, but like... I know what they, you're talking about. It was, it was like, basically, if somebody said, what if we took the baseball cards away from Tops and made it look like a Tootsie Roll? Nasty gum. It was a Peepums nasty gum. It was thicker. Like I might envision it to be like at least the thickness of a dime, maybe like the diameter of a dime, maybe the diameter of a It looks kind of like a lock cylinder. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it wrapped in paper, twisted on both ends. Nasty. Terrible tasting. Taste goes Ugh. away within Just seconds. Just so unsatisfying compared <sighs> to like a seconds. big league chew. Yeah. But they were like five cents each and someone would bring in a giant bag of them and we would play. You uh, to chew gum in school. We were because it's the computer class. Nobody, I don't even know if we had a teacher. I can't picture a teacher oh, in my I head. See. We were in a room mm-hmm. with a bunch of Apple IIs with a monochrome green screens, and we played Flight Simulator. I don't know if it was Microsoft Flight Simulator, but a monochrome green Flight Simulator on Apple II <laughs> was is it not a text a, adventure or were there any graphics? Not a surprisingly engaging experience. I think we probably did stuff in basic <laughs> touch or flight yolk. Yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are windows north, south, east, and west. Yeah, I think we did play some text adventures, but that is not what sparked my interest in being a programmer. I used to play Leather Goddesses of Phobos. I had mm-hmm. that one, and I had, I think, a Leisure, Leisure, Leisure Suit Larry. Some of the, yeah. whatever that Do- Douglas Hofstetter uh, company was. Is that the guy? Who am I thinking of? Who's the guy that did, um, no, who, who did Hitchhiker's Guy? What was that guy's uh, name? Douglas Adams? Douglas Adams, yeah. Yeah. Hofstetter's the Girdlesher Bach guy. Continue. There you go. Anyway, um, so I... The choice of a college and the selection of a major was novel and then pretty quickly after being novel, fairly paralyzing because now like it was suddenly a decision with con- up in that point. There was no like decision was always just do as, as well as you can do in school. Like everyone just wanted you to get good grades, get in the advanced class. And I was not super into that, but I did. You know, like I, was saying, I was a bad student. I did not apply myself. I was you know, what is it, my. My the the phrase that haunted me for my entire education not working up to potential. Oh, it was God. on probably every report card of my entire life. There's nobody that that hasn't touched. You, me, Roderick are three good ones to start with. Yeah, and I'm not sure that 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 fra- that exact phrasing that kept being handwritten on my report cards for my entire educational life served the purpose they thought it was serving. But I have to admit, it was absolutely true. I was not working as a potential. I could or, have or like, But like if from a more cynical person could read that a smart but cynical person who's not working up to their own abilities could read that and say, wow, I'm still getting away with it. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I was doing. That's I was what putting I thought. in the absolute minimal effort because I didn't like school. I can't believe I haven't gotten nailed for turning in as, as little homework as I do. Right. I just I just didn't do homework at all as a matter of principle no, it was an no, affront to me that homework existed yeah. no i told oh john i totally agree 
Yeah. So anyway, I was not I was not a good student. But it is, although, just, just real quick, though, like in, in some ways, so we talked about this a million years ago and looking at I was talking about that book, Rapid Development, and that notion of like the cost uh, of change inside of a project on the left side versus the right side. You're still pretty far at this point, even though you don't care that much about the project because it seems inevitable. But like there's you don't have much skin in the game at this point. It isn't like you're I don't know if your folks went to Yale, but like mine didn't. <laughs> but like there was no place where I was definitely going to be a legacy to easily fit right in there. The money had not been accounted for. But like if I'm at the point where I'm saying I like the red and yellow outfits better than the orange and blue outfits, that's pr- a pl- pretty clear indication that this is still a pretty flippy floppy enterprise. But then that does change pretty fast. I mean, that was that was a blessing of my my parents' education and their parenting in general is they didn't go to fancy schools, um, mostly because they probably couldn't have afforded them, but their grades probably wouldn't get them in either. And there was no particular pressure on me to be a super duper great student, which is why I could get away with putting in the absolute minimum effort and never doing homework. Um, so it wasn't like I was in this pressure cooker type thing. But the selection of a major meant had like life consequences. It was essentially asking a kid who's not ready to answer this question, what do you want to do with your life? Not from the music video. Um, like, who do you want to be as a grown up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Because kind of picking your college major is the first time you're kind of like charting your course. If you're going to be a doctor, it's kind of the type of decision that you can't Absolutely. wait until you're 35 to think about that. Um, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. you're going to do. Like, are you going to be a, an in your artist? third year and you haven't had any bio classes? Like that's, that's a door that's pretty much closed at are, that point. Are, are you going to be a painter? You probably don't want to go to an engineering school for that. If that's what you're going to do, there's a whole other set of school called art schools. Right. And like, are you going to major in math? Or are you going to be a writer? Are you going to be a journalist? And like big, big, these branching paths go off in all sorts of directions. And you're choice of college which this this inevitable thing that was like yeah yeah and i'll go to college like in the abstract i'll just go to college but now it's like no but you're going to go to a college not all colleges at once and therefore you must pick one and chart your course it's pretty daunting and then the other aspect of it is because i was in the gnt classes with not gin and tonic the gifted and talented classes Mm -hmm. with all the nerdy kids two things happened one as high school wound on it became clear that my slacking off was going to have consequences that I actually cared about because for whatever reason, like I I was actually, I was totally in the Roderick mode here where like I, despite the fact that my grades weren't that great, I thought of myself as just as smart as all the other smart kids because I'm a smart ass, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just like Roderick was thinking of himself. Yeah, we're all, we're all the same here, whatever. And then, but like as, as time goes on, like, oh, do you realize there's a thing called like ranking in senior in your senior year where they rank you academically and the number one is called the valedictorian and they get to give a speech and the number two is a salutatorian they and they might get to give a speech to? You know what third prize is? Steak knives. Yeah. No, seriously. You're describing Glengarry Glenn Ross, and it's really true. It's the Microsoft force ranking before the force rankings. Right. And and you would think like, well, so fine, if you're a slacker in school, but you don't care about those rankings, right? And the thing is I did care about those rankings because I felt when when you're not ranked like that you can like john roderick just continue to believe that you're just as smart as everybody else but then once they start ranking you according to your grades all that homework you didn't do and all that slacking off you've been doing like yeah. and those those people have been fighting for every single egg and doing every extra credit <laughs> pretty assignment soon, pretty soon frank kufel's rifling through your locker yeah and, and then it, it just felt uh you know uh, unjust right in the same way it felt unjust that all his friends would go off and be doctors and he wouldn't be a doctor because he was just as smart as they are right um, and so that was part of the, the college thing is like, I, there was, you know, my parents went to, you know, like I said, unremarkable schools, state schools, whatever. 
Um, but these kids, I don't know if their parents did it or the parents were telling them they were going to do it. They had their eyes on like, I want to get into Harvard, right? I want to go to Yale, right? That was their yeah. ambition. And they were executing on that plan, presumably from the time they were born. I don't know. But like, but the thing is, you re- what you started to realize was not only am I not going to be in the top whatever of my class, but also your hopes of ever going to one of those fancy schools essentially relies on you being probably number one or number two, because there's going to be a lot of uh, white, Italian, Irish, Jewish kids from Long Island applying to Harvard next year. And it's going to be really hard for you to stand out if you are not the number one in your podunk school, the number two or yeah, whatever. You might and need also, to be number one plus James Franco. Yeah. Plus also have, you, you know, know what I mean? Like, but like something star. where like you're like Malala or something like, nah, I'm not trying to make light, but I mean, you need something really, and it's, it is so strange how there's this handful of schools that we see as this, like, you know, everybody's trying to, that's what makes them so, that's what makes their acceptance rate so crazy is that everybody's like, well, I'll take a flyer. It's only gonna cost me 30 bucks back then anyway to apply the worst they can say is no it's not like it's going to affect your credit but like that's that is that is a that is some rare air and just because you you did well in a suburban high school there's not any if anything approaching a guarantee that you're going to get in anywhere really yeah and 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 in a populous state like there's millions of people from the new york metro area applying to those schools and like they don't want they could fill the whole school with with uh, you throw a dart anywhere on long island or new york city they could fill the whole school with those people they don't they want people from all over the country they want you know like even then it was understood Mm -hmm. that like they're not going to just rank all the people according to their gpas and pick the top n for harvard that's not how admissions works uh, they want you to be a well-rounded person. You have to extra have extracurriculars. You have to write a good essay. You have to do all these things or whatever. And in some way, I bet you have to sort of, if you get into that racket in admissions, and we will definitely get to this with standardized testing, is like, I would not be surprised to learn that some of the more long-lived and successful admissions people also realized, how do I make sure this is, isn't somebody who peaked at 16? Yeah. And like, uh, that's the, we'll get into the standardized testing a little bit, but I was pitched on as the idea of like the purpose of standardized testing is to determine if you're going to be successful in college because it, it tracks don't want well. People. Yeah. I suppose that's what yeah. I always heard was that SAT scores are highly correlate, correlate, they correlate with success in college that like you, it's peas and carrots. You don't have one with them. Right. Together. And so Harvard doesn't want a genius who's going to like flunk out freshman year because they're just too busy, you know, going hog wild. Right. They want someone who's going to work the right. system and, and graduate. Right. So anyway, like the, the, seeing my what i thought of as my peers but were actually essentially my academic betters seeing them Hmm. seeing them sort of start reaching for that star and start like sort of separating from me i didn't like that because i thought like you know i mean charitably (laughs) i'm going to say as an adult i thought i was just as smart as them but uh, realistically i probably thought i was smarter than all of them because you know oh sure you uh, knew you knew the ins and outs you weren't some kind of sucker that was turning in homework uh, but not, but just uh, even just academically, I felt yeah. like you know that that like yeah, it was, it was obnoxious kid, right? And mm-hmm. of course, whatever skills that I had, you know, I valued over like because I wasn't that good at math. But like math isn't the important skill. I I do better in English class, and that's the important one because everyone knows that. You know, anyway, mm-hmm. all, all sorts of terrible like uh, egotistical things I thought about myself within the tiny realm where I had any kind of mastery. And then it turns out in that realm, I wasn't really master of much either because it turns out. Getting good <laughs> grades is actually a thing you have to work at. Uh, and if you don't work at it, they're not going <laughs> to just... Pretty, they're, they're, these guys are pretty smart for being dummies. Yeah, they're not just going to get to give you valedictorian because it's like, well, your grades were crap, but we know you're probably the smartest one in the school. So you didn't you get good, quote unquote, grades, but... Right. 
I mean, and and I wasn't as far off as Roderick was because I feel like he feels, uh, uh, you know, I don't put words in his mouth. But I, I get the impression that he feels it was like un, his his conception of his academic acumen uh, compared to the grades was a bigger gap than mine. Right. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I was upset because I wasn't in like the, you know, the top five. Uh, but I was I was up there. Right. And I was in all the fancy classes with all the people. It's just that, you know, once you start ranking anyway. So so college, like I had to. I had to take on board the idea that I wasn't ever going to go to a fancy school, um, which was a hard thing to take, I suppose. And then I had to pick what it is I wanted to do, which I found extremely difficult. Maybe I needed a vocational wheel or something, but we didn't have we didn't have a lot of that. We did have guidance counselors making suggestions and they were hilarious, as yours were, of like, yeah, whatever, like materials they had or like the, the equivalent of like an Internet quiz. Find out which uh, Sex and the City uh, person you are. Right. Yeah, we had those for careers, and that you don't. Job, you the, we, we ours was called Jabo, but also in the case of my guy, as I've said numerous times, his priors really came along with him as somebody who had achieved some kind of, you know, uh, enlisted uh, rank in the Air Force. He mm-hmm. thought I should join the Air Force. That was that was his advice. And you know what? If if I if I weren't being such a smartass, rolling my eyes all the time, I would have probably realized he was right. I mean, it probably would have been my best bet come senior year. There was an armed forces strain for sure in the school. It wasn't particularly strong. Like it wasn't, that mm-hmm. wasn't, but it was there. It was absolutely, it was, you were aware that. Oh, they were like vultures, like just like circling around yeah. Gulf Comprehensive High School. Yeah. And especially like, uh, I, I would say like, especially among the kids who get the better grades, maybe they're not going to Harvard, but they're good students. That's, that's who they would pitch. Like, Hey, if you're smart, you come here. Like I, I was, I never considered the military for many, 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 many reasons. Too many to count. It's, I but, mean, it's it looks like a pretty promising offer to get. You know, like I said before, my my envy over my you know my primary uh, my primary. She has a life outside of me knowing her in the eighties. But the girl who was my girlfriend for a lot of high school, as I've said, she joined the Air Force and they put her through college, and she retired over ten years ago. Yeah, that was the other aspect of a lot of the military pitch was like, you know, it will help you pay for college or will, you know, support you and so on. And I didn't, I, I had the luxury of not having to worry about that because I just assumed whatever college I went to, my parents would pay for. Um, and I know I wasn't going to get into the fancy ones. And I really didn't have any concept of how much colleges cost at that point. Um, so I just assumed, oh, my parents will take care of that, which is another another blessing that I had. I, didn't, uh, I just assumed that I would go to college. My parents assumed it would go and I just assumed they would pay for it all, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, when we started looking at colleges, and they, they did nothing to disabuse you of that. Well, when we or got was it just a thought it, in your head. When we got closer to it, boy, my parents are really into state schools. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good colleges right there in uh, New good York, public yeah, schools in in New York State. You know, the SUNY system. Like there are the thing is there are actually a lot of good schools, but yes, my parents suddenly had very strong opinions about, what, and it was you know not entirely based on cost, but geez, like, can you cut us a break? This is what made New College, you know the South's uh, most, most uh, prestigious safety school. My, my ex, uh, basically, she could go to Brown and make her parents literally cry for four years, or she could go to New College and they'd also buy her a car. End of story. Yeah, and, and the, the, uh, the financial aid situation was another, another thing that was a complexity oh, that I wasn't God. ready to deal with, which is like... And that, that, even then, back then, it seemed so simple. It's, it's, it's like a regular, like, uh, what's the home story? Red-haired society? Like, it seems like, you know, if you, if you were smart enough to go get one of those, you know, one or two or three, like, giant books, you could find all these things where you could apply for a, a grant yeah. or a, 
there's like all of this stuff. And now today, I mean, that's all become so professionalized. The test prep, it's all professionalized. The, you know, I mean, like, I, I, I believe there are people you can hire to like do all of these things. Yeah. I remember uh, the, the scholarship thing. I remember being, there was, there was uh, speaking of the military strain and other things that were sort of in the air. One of the big things that was in the air in our school for unsurprising reasons was Italian American scholarships. If you are a full-blooded Italian American, as I was, there are scholarships available and you don't have to do anything for them except for have a certain set of parents. That sounds right? like, sound like a, I'm sorry. It sounds like a euphemism for being thrown in a river. He received an Italian scholarship. It is just absolutely a thing. Like, this, I'm not sure if you heard, there's a lot of Italians on Long Island and there were scholarships focused on that alone. And, and it was like, okay, well, should absolutely. I be applying? Should I be applying for these? Because my parents want me to go to state school because the other schools are so expensive and all this other stuff. And it was just. I, one of, one of my sources was, I think I, I mean, there were lots of, but there's also just ones where like, I think I got a small amount of like sub thousand dollars from like writing an essay for like the police benevolent association or something. There were all of these just yeah. this really weird piecework that you could do to get educated. But no, I know that that's a huge one, but then there's also, a, there's the legacy stuff of the actual colleges and universities, but there's the legacy stuff of like trade groups, Kiwanis, like there's all those different kinds of things as well. Yeah. There was those side quests, like you're just describing side quests that you could do in video game parlance where you could get some amount of money towards college for doing a thing. <laughs> and you're like, it just seems so weird of like, I don't know. It was like this whole game space <laughs> opened up and I mostly wasn't interested in engaging it. And it was too, I couldn't even, I wasn't even a good enough student. If you thought I was going to chase after the Italian American scholarships, you, you know, <laughs> like it's just like do more school related things on top of the school stuff that I'm already not doing. It doesn't, didn't make any sense to me, uh, but I did have to decide what I wanted to do. And that was actually, I, I do remember having to make a decision and it was, I don't know, it was a difficult decision. It was like, it's not a straight wasn't a straightforward decision because my sort of academic profile as described to me by you know whatever by my entire schooling was not so great at math really good writer right yep and that makes you think <laughs> oh i'm familiar with that faint praise <laughs> maybe maybe you should and you know because you know i i got by in the all the advanced math classes just basically by you know a sort of horsepower of general smarts, but clearly this was not my aptitude because, but for the people who it was their aptitude, they were just basing everything and I was not, you know. And you look at that and you're like, oh, well, you should probably be a liberal arts major because that's just right up your alley, right? Like you're really good. You love reading, you love books, you love arguing, you love, you know, <laughs> you're a good writer. Like, yeah, in a weird way, you do kind of have philosophy major written all over you. For sure, right? But you, like, you, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. I mean, in the sense that, you like complicated arguments and disassembling, you know, sets of facts, not just logically, but like also being able to talk about like distinctions. I could even see you like, and when you have to do your like, you know, uh, religions, Christian religions module, being able to like talk about, you know, the transubstantiation or something like I could see that being right up your alley. And then like, but those little distinctions, that's, that's the kind of person who becomes a lawyer a lot of times. Yeah, or even like just AP U.S. history and government, writing those uh, every week, writing five page essays about history. Like that was that was my wheelhouse. Right. I could, you know, learn about the things and articulate it and argue it and talk about all the stuff. And so it's like based on skill set and grades, it seems like you should be a liberal arts major. But of course, what you also know about me probably 
is I'm super, super duper into computers, right? Mm. I love computers. And gum, and, chewing gum. <laughs> and everything having to do with science and technology and essentially engineering, even though I didn't have the word for it then. All the books about rockets, all the magazines about cars, like just, you know, so even though if you, did, if you, if you didn't look at my grades and just look like what I was doing with my free time, you'd say, aha, engineer. But then you look at the grades and you're like, eh, well, mm-hmm. maybe engineer is engineering for you because it's got a lot of math, right? Yeah. Um, and not that my math grades were bad, but like in the balance, it was a clear where my strengths were. And so I had to decide which path am I going to go down? Am I going to go down the path of go to my strengths, which were not in the math engineering side, or am I going to go to my interest, which is in the math engineering side? And the other thing pushing me in the direction of the math engineering side was the fact that my dad was actually an engineer, albeit a civil engineer. The most boring kind of engineer. Not really, but that was my mm-hmm. view of it as a kid. Because uh, I mean, If you want toilets to work, it's pretty interesting. On. Roads? Seriously? What's, what's to know Who about uses roads? Those? What's, the, what's to know about roads? They're just flat and they, ha, yeah, it turns out there's a lot to know about roads. Um, but oh, <laughs> anyway. Don't get me started on traffic lights. Woof. Yeah. Um, so I went with what I was interested in, which I guess is what you can imagine any high school age kid is going to do is like, you know, uh, based on my experiences, like, uh, yeah, so math isn't my strength, but I'll probably be able to get by. Like, I've been faking it so far, right? Uh, but that's what I was into, and especially computers. Like, I wanted to do something with computers. I didn't know what. I didn't actually, I, at this point, I was not a programmer. I didn't, had never done any serious program other than futzing with basic for, you know, on and off for my childhood. But I, I didn't, I didn't understand programming at all when I picked what I wanted to do. So I was an engineering major. I was computer engineering major. Once I found that major, that kind of cemented it, which is like, how did, how did, how how did you find that major? It was like, 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 sorry, but like in terms of like, I'm interested in your thread here of like, um, because I do think this is a big deal for people of any age, which is like, uh, there's that line Kevin Kelly says, I love about like, you know, if you're looking at, at jobs, try to consider jobs that don't have a name yet or try to, you know what I mean? The kind of thing where like in your case, you, you, somebody comes along who came along with what set of words where you went, Oh, I guess that is what I would quote unquote like to do. How did that, was it a guidance counselor or a, a friend of your family or how did that happen? Do you remember? I mean, so here, here's the thing, like kind of like your, your experience in the college fair, a lot of my decision-making was based on things that turned out to have no bearing in reality at this point. Right. <laughs> and yeah. one, and one of them was like, what do you want to major in based on your reckon, as you would say, about what that major actually is? And I liked computers, but I had I had essentially decided that I didn't want to be a liberal arts major. And so when I, I said, I like computers. All right. So is there some kind of computers major? And quickly, you will find computer science in any school that you're looking at. You'll find, oh, computer science. That must be what I want. But then you find out computer science is in the liberal arts school. And you're like, how is the computer thing in the liberal arts school? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you go because to the next college. Because it's technically math? Yeah, like you go to the next college and you go, okay, computer science, liberal, what? Computer science, and, and it doesn't, it wasn't tracking for me. I'm like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like the whole point is I had made a decision that I wanted to do the techie engineering thing. I don't want to, like, it seemed like you were getting, that you were losing out on both. Like I wouldn't be able to essentially say I'm an engineer like my father before me, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't get to say <laughs> that, but then I would, I would end up, doing the thing I said I wasn't going to do, which is going to the major that supposedly goes on my strengths. And then the part that, you know, like you you noted, it was kind of clear from talking to guidance counselors that computer science is a lot of math. I'm like, but that's not the part that I like about computers. Why would I need to do math if I have a computer? Right. Like, I, you know, it's not. And so anyway, I knew computer science wasn't for me. I eliminated computer science, but I wanted to do something with computers. And so part of 
many things conspired to make me go where I ended up going, including being rejected from all the schools that I wanted to go to more. But one of them was uh, Boston University had a program called computer engineering. That's the first time I ever thought saw that phrase, I think, was in their list of, hey, here's the things that you can major in at BU. And I'm like, computer engineering, tell me more, because it's got computer in it, but it's in the engineering school. And that is essentially the extent of my knowledge of choosing that major was like computers, but it's in the engineering school. And it's not <laughs> and it's not computer yeah. science. Can I can I can I add a slightly historical footnote that probably says more about me than you? At the time when these things were first coming on my radar screen, and as previously stipulated for the record, like I never had an interest in computers, I dropped out of basic, et cetera. But like where I came from, what I've been exposed to with computers was some unholy amalgam of sure, eventually the ad for the Apple Macintosh that I kind of predicted a change in my life I couldn't have guessed at the time, even as I sat agog looking at that two-page ad in uh, time. But like snapshots of, of my understanding of computers, well, first com computers were like the beep-boop, beep-boop stuff in like a Bewitched episode with blinking lights and stuff like that. Eventually, the practical level of computing when I was in, say, junior high and early high school, uh, if you thought about it in terms of a vocation, you might say, you know, broadly, oh, computer programmer. You're the person who makes punch cards or whatever. But the two ways that broke down a lot, and I had experience with this somewhat through my grandmother, who'd had her like sort of third career. My grandmother had been an executive assistant all of her uh, working life and eventually retrained on what was it, uh, this new thing called word processing. And I don't mean to sound like I'm talking down to you youths, but you know, it, it used to be somewhere, <laughs> let's just say it wasn't as simple as opening Microsoft Word and typing that there was a little bit of like formatty stuff you had to do with WordStar, whatever that was. But like the the, the two ways that broke down for people of, of my um, economic background was word processing or like computer repair. Like, as I think I've said to you, I, I still have the sticker, the parking sticker for when I had enrolled at United Electronics Institute, where I was going to learn how to fix air conditioners and cash registers, mostly cash registers. It was basically a cash register repair school who, like a lot of those TV, UHF advertised schools, was mostly about job placement. Like you, you jump through the hoops, you know, you show up, keep your nose clean, and then eventually we'll get you a job at NCR, which is exactly what, oh, also that one photo I sent, the one when I weighed 140 pounds, where I'm on the right, and that, that, uh, my friend Tammy is in the middle, and there's that guy with the kind of weird hair muff on the left. Mm -hmm. That's my friend DJ. We were gonna go to UEI together. I ended up not going to UEI. He went to UEI, and yeah, he became kind of a big wheel in like regional, like NCR cash register repair. Like, but that was it. You know what I'm saying? There was not this idea of like the personal computer was something you read about in magazine articles or saw in Omni magazine, but like there was not a computer in the house of anybody that I knew. It was something that was very professionalized and you either fixed them or you typed words in them. Everything else was done by some big Univac in a Warner Brothers studio. Yeah, the, the sub-decade difference in our ages is profound in terms of technology advancement just because of how the curve was kicking off at that point. And, sure. you know, just you being born a, a scant handful of years before me meant your, you know, your view of what constitutes computers was so radically different than mine. Absolutely. I'm, what, eight years? I'm eight years older than you? Something like that? Something like that. Well, I mean, yeah. like the, the Mac for me, we got our first Mac when I was nine in 1984. Oh, my gosh. That's when I was a junior in high school. Right. And so like, like that is my like, aside from the VIC-20 and the Apple IIs and stuff, like that's my, that's my foundation that I'm building from. Whereas you're seeing the Mac is like, like your conception again was like of 
like the, the big mainframes and punch cards and word processing and repairing them. But, but I mean, but the actual Mac that I saw in that ad and then I started using in 1987, um, that might has might as well have been a Learjet or, or at least like a G5 to me. Yeah, and I think that's what like, I mean, I was super into computers anyway. Again, why why my parents rented me a VIC-20 is because I was expressing an interest and it's a thing that I wanted and we couldn't afford to buy one. So you could rent a VIC-20. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, presumably that spark is what led them to mortgage whatever they needed to mortgage to get a Mac in 1984. But it was, <laughs> they're willing to do it to sort of, you know, uh, uh, in these sort of hippie parent ethos of like encouraging whatever your kids are into, which is good move for them i think um and a good move for me but yeah like my my view of what computers were and why i was into them was so different than yours and it, and obviously looking at your eventual career i think if you had been born you know seven or eight years later you probably would have been in a similar position to me where it would have been much clearer that you're totally into this type of thing but i would have been really i bet i'm not being sarcastic i bet it, it maybe not 10 years but maybe even five years i bet i would have been really into windows that would have made a ton more sense having a DOS you computer. Have, you have better taste than that. Come on. <laughs> Who knows if I would have ended up having better taste? I think you would. Like, I, it seems like you were drawn. Like you mentioned you were drawn to the Mac and the people who are drawn to the Mac that powerfully. It's a collection of attributes. Box. There's a little box that had a button on it and there's a cord that would go into the back of the computer. And when you move, when you move that little box, this little pointer on the screen would move. Proportional fonts. WYSIWYG. Yeah. You know, you that, were, you uh, that, to... that, that one uh, bitmapped uh, geisha looking lady mm-hmm. who was in everything. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, like, it, they got a lot the, of mileage out of that geisha. To, to, a, to a first approximation, the only reason we're talking to each other right now is because the Mac appeals to both of us in the same ways. Like, that's how we all, oh, yeah. like, early, especially early Mac users and people who found each other on the internet because they admired their websites and the typography mm-hmm. on them. Like, this yeah. is that's the reason we all kind of came together, right? It's the gravitational yeah, totally. pull of, similarities and tastes you know like it is with any scene whatever whatever mm-hmm. scene you're into the people who will find themselves in that scene it's because of some sort of shared value system you know and it just and i feel like we definitely do share that value system but you were born too early and mm-hmm. that didn't have anything to latch onto in the computer world until not until it was too late but it sounds like until you were like <laughs> it's also just difficult i'm not trying to poor mouth here but it's, it's also it's hard for me to articulate this is hard for me to articulate on several levels because even setting aside memory and like, you know, the, the, the little twinge that you feel when you remember how something felt at a certain point. But I, I don't want to overstate this because I think I do have a history of overstating this, but I think it's really important. It's really important to remember that every kid, whether you mean to or not, is given a range of, of likely outcomes is given a range of possible income uh, outcomes is given a range of desired outcomes and some of those are intentional some are not some might be you're going to become a priest others might be you're also going to be a cobbler like i don't i mean that, that all differs from person to person but something i feel like i can sit here today and say with some confidence was i only i, f- I feel like i was i think every kid like teachers go become teachers well you know, for different reasons, but like, I think they do want their students to do well and to succeed and to do the best that they can do. I think generally, I mean, I don't want to be too cynical and, you know, thirsty to get a joke out of that. I think guidance counselors probably would rather you did better rather than worse. I think all of those things are true, but we're all governed by our own understanding about what the actual possibilities are. And 
let's we just watched uh we just finished royal tenenbaums last night let's just say like i'm i'm no self i'm i am not a tenenbaum kid i was never a tenenbaum i mean i was i was weird and ambitious and creative in ways that nobody found particularly appealing i thought it was fun sometimes to make up a game i could play by myself cuz i was lonely but i didn't write plays like Margot. i didn't become uh, a tennis a pro like Richie. I did not become an entrepreneur like Chaz. I wasn't any of those things. I certainly didn't become a, an esteemed attorney like Royal. But you, you know what I mean? Like there's, there is a sort of, there's a sort of um, existential hum of possibility that, that you have around you and you can't even really be aware of. In my less kind moments, it's why I roll my eyes a little bit at kids who've never missed a meal because they, they haven't, or <laughs> I, I used to be fond of saying that Marco's never had his ass kicked in life. I think Marco has had his ass. I think he grew up having his ass kicked in life. But like, you know what I mean? Like there are certain, there are certain folks that I've been very closely acquainted with who have um, the kinds of desperation that they faced were usually oftentimes much more emotional. Like we were, we were pretty Waltons, my mom and me. Like we really liked each other and we had a pretty good home life. And as, as riven with sadness as a lot of my childhood was, like my family was pretty cool and they weren't weird and they didn't do gross stuff to me. But I also did not feel, I didn't have a person in my life, whether that's a guidance counselor, or I didn't have a person in my life who could credibly say to me, you can be anything you want. And to even, I say that with a certain amount of envy and regret. Like I, because I think it's hard to say that to a kid in a way that doesn't sound like BS. It's really more reflected by what's happening around you. You can say all the things you want about how you can do anything. Like I'm going to take you to swim practice every day at five or like Tanya Harding's terrible mother taking her to practice ice skating and constantly remind her what a burden she is. Like everybody's got, it's a mixed bag being a kid, but I just, I did not feel, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was different for other people where I'm from and maybe it wasn't a where you're from thing. Maybe it's a what time in history it was in, but like, I don't know. I guess I just always kind of assumed that everything would probably turn out mostly okay, but I did not really feel the confidence or the support to take a giant, giant leap, which almost certainly is totally on me. But as I sit here today, that's, that's why I say what I'm saying here about like college. Yeah, sure. I could go to college. I mean, I guess I could also go to one of these countries I've heard of, but have no reason to believe exist. I could learn to fly a plane. I could do a lot of things. My goal was to become an accountant because I heard they made over $3 an hour. That was, and I wanted over $3 an hour, which seemed extremely appealing to me. But like, I don't know how you, I don't know what mix you come up with to successfully combine, and we never did get to return, turn to grit, which I am feel, feel no better about than I did two years ago, whenever it was we first talked about it. But I don't know how you do that. And I'm sorry to, to carry on here, but I do think this becomes important. I don't think there's any one answer for this. I don't think there's any one answer even for a month in a kid's life. Are you supposed to like, what do you hit your kid and you push them around, you tell them what they're going to do, or you just get all wavy gravy and be like the Flanders parents, you know, we tried nothing and (laughs) it didn't work. I don't know what the answer is, but I do feel like there are certain environments and times and settings where people are raised to become, maybe you can become a Margot Tenenbaum, but not as sad. I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't feel that. Yeah, I think it's a, a an interesting setting aside the obvious differences in economic situations and, you know, just general life trauma, like for any sort of uh, pervasive culture in any area, it's like a mix of what is the environment and what kind of kid is plopped into that. Um, 
So to give like the other extreme example, imagine you are a particular kind of kid is plopped into an environment where everyone was a bazillionaire and everyone's expected to go to Harvard. Um, yeah. For some kids, that's like, well, smooth sailing. Like my parents will get me into the nice school. I never have to worry about anything. I'm fine. But you plop into that same environment, that same sort of oppressive environment, because this is the culture of wherever we are, right? A kid who is a bit more high strung and it crushes them, right? Because it's like all my yep. all this pressure and I can't handle this and it's all just about achievement. And what if I can't achieve that? And like, it's like sort of the the curse of everyone telling you not just like you can do anything, but that you are going to be like, you know, a genius doctor or something from the day you're born, because of course we are, we are wealthy people and everyone in this area goes to fancy schools and your parents all went to it and you're going to do it too. And it, you can just be crushed under the weight of that. Well, and also maybe while you're growing up, we talked about this during the Andre Agassi um, and Steffi Graf part as like, I mean, I think it would be very cynical just to say, well, it is just good genes or it is just money or it is just any of those things. I mean, how many, are you there's probably a roughly 50% split between people who turned out a lot like their parents and people who didn't people who had, you know what I mean? There's that, there's that sort of like ineffable uh, thing of like, I, I used to, I feel like one of the smarter things I realized in college is that we become a lot exactly like our parents or family and a lot exactly not like them. And the art in life is to figure out which parts are true, which ones where you are like your family and parents and where you aren't. And then the artfulness is deciding like how you feel about that and what you want to do about that. But like, I mean, and again, we experienced this, this, this happened a lot at new college. It's something we struggled with our, you know, I was on the foundation board. I was on the alumni board. And a thing that we really struggled with in the early nineties was that, um, new college was considered a, what's called a highly selective school, which is, I think something like at that time, anyway, it meant like fewer than 20% of the people who applied got it, whatever it was. The point being, we were in the tier with the Ivies in terms of selective uh, you know, how, how selective it was, but that also became difficult because, and the reason I, I worked in that little, I laid that groundwork with, um, did you peak at 16? There were a lot of kids that were in whatever that Steffi Graf environment was. They grew up surrounded by support for what it took to get into the school they wanted to get into for what it took to win, like a, become a merit scholar, or, you know, maybe later on, you could maybe even be a Fulbright scholar, whatever it was. But I don't want to make this too much of a cliche, but I saw I saw this happen, and I know this happened statistically from talking to admissions and from talking to um, you know just the the different academic folks. Is that as much? So we can say that the reason SATs are so heavily they're so important for so long was that it correlates with success in college. Well, maybe, but like which college? How much did you stay the same? How much did you change? The thing that you spend your whole life trying to get into that good school does not mean you're going to succeed at that good school. Because once you're no longer in that household with, with the Steffi Graphs in your life, um, there were a lot of kids, women in particular, I'm going to say, women who were your classic, you know, um, val valedictorian, salutatorian, whatever, <laughs> like, but really good, like, like all like A pluses. And within the, like sometimes by, by Thanksgiving, they stopped shaving. They weren't wearing shoes. They didn't care. I mean, I know that sounds like a cliche, but they'd been so cloistered their entire life. They never really got to be even a legit teenager. And once they were outside of that environment, taking classes that the, the academics of that school were not that, that hard, but it was very unstructured. Oh my gosh. We accidentally found the reverse skeleton key, which is in, in the absence of the structure 
of like this computer at this table in this room, your, your sponsor, your whatever, your professors, they don't care. They get paid either way. They want you to succeed, but they're not going to hold your hand and like throw you a biscuit every time you turn something in. And for a lot of kids in the absence of that, they're Wile E. Coyote, like running around over Sarasota Bay because the, the, everything that had made that, I, I'm not beating up on Steffi Graf, but whatever it was, if you grew up in that environment, the, like the thing you never realize is you never, you never had to be in an unstructured environment where it wasn't even to be creative. It was more to be, you had to be like super self-organizing, self-motivated, and you had to care about invisible things that did not lead to a good grade. AKA biscuit. Part of the beauty of college when it works successfully is that it gives you the opportunity to do what you just described to escape the uh, expectations, oppression, however you want to phrase it, depending on how however overwhelming it was. Uh, but there is the the other scenario, like in my extreme case, of where uh, the expectations essentially follow you, where the expectation isn't simply get into Harvard, but it's like. And now also at Harvard, you have to get straight A's and you have to become a very successful doctor. Right. They're, they're, they're all like, over here on the dock waving their hankies and fancy hats going like, well, we did everything we could, like have, have fun in college, do great because you have everything you need to succeed. Right. No well, pressure. That, so, that, so that's the case where you actually do get to the break. But sometimes they get on the boat with you, like mentally or mm. like practically. And then and that they go, people go to college and don't actually get that separation. Like maybe they're actually separated by hundreds of miles, but they feel like their parents are sitting mm. on both of their shoulders doing essentially forcing them to continue to do the thing that's expect, expected of them even that's while true. they're in college as opposed to the person who gets away and is like ah oh, i can finally breathe and like like i feel like the college experience is supposed to provide that but i have actually seen people not experience that separation despite sometimes hundreds of years uh, hundreds of miles physically separating them like the expectations come with them and that's that's sometimes that if if we eventually learn you might not learn this when you're 20 when you and your parents are at the college, you know, age, but like you do eventually learn that there are people who like, boy, the thing I, I, I don't care where, I, I don't care if this school, I could go to like the fanciest, like, let's say you with like, I don't know, MIT or Harvard versus uh, just arbitrarily something like Evergreen where it's like, well, yeah, it's Evergreen, man. I want to, I want to go to a weird school, but I also want those miles in between. Like it's important to me for a variety of reasons to have those miles in between it. So it's not because I hate my parents, but it's because like this, this needs to be a clean, uh, not a clean break, but you know what I mean? Like I, I need a, I need a fresh start. Here. Yeah. I mean, it means to me, it means to be a new phase. And, and I feel like the, uh, the and I need the thing- to not have that net. I need to not have Steffi, Steffi yeah. Graf there to send me a cashier. <laughs> you can't, your, your tennis analogies are, are slightly off, but it's, it's fine. Who was we, it? We, Who's we with it. Andre Agassi? Who am I saying? Yeah, no, they're, they're the people who are married, but Andre was the one who was essentially forced to play tennis by his parents because like essentially they saw, you know, no, but I, I just mean even the most benevolent and kind mm-hmm. and well-meaning parents even or especially that kind of parents can be the ones that end up crushing the bunny. Um, you know, again, who knows what's going to make us like and not like our parents, but like, that's why my, my wife went to Bard for a few years before she ended up going to Santa Cruz. Bard was incredibly expensive, like deeply expensive, especially for a family of her size, Santa Cruz less so. But, you know, I think that was a big thing for her was like, she was the youngest of seven and it was important to her to be independent and to make her own way at least insofar as like she would, she would have to sink or swim at, at a place that was not, you know, I mean, even if she'd gone to Brown, if she'd gone, if she had gone to Brown, like that's basically 20 minutes from her house. 
Yeah, I feel the good thing about college and, and the age people go to it is that even if your parents' expectations come with you and they are on your shoulders, there's, it's kind of a cliche at this point of the person who goes in and is pre-med and goes through it all. Maybe they even get into medical school and start medical school. and like, But eventually, if they don't actually want to be a doctor and are just doing it because their parents want them to, eventually, mostly maybe it's because they're becoming adults or whatever, but like they, mm-hmm. they do shake off those shackles and say, you know what, I'm my own person. And they disappoint everybody, quote unquote, disappoint everybody of like in their third year of medical school saying, actually, I don't want to be a doctor. I've just been doing this my literally my whole life because mom and dad, you want me to do it, but I want to be something else entirely. Right. That's such a cliche. But you see it happen of, you know, whether it's the person bailing out of the first year of law school or changing their major halfway through college, it is actually Mm -hmm. difficult to stay on top of the people in the same way you can when you live with them. So I feel like people do eventually break out from that, but it's such a, I don't know, like it's, it's, you know, it's uplifting to see people charting their own path, but you feel like, you know, well, boy, those wasted years where you were doing what your parents demanded of you when really it's not what you wanted. And it took you a while to figure that out. It's, it's kind of a blessing in the scenario you described where the girl shows up on campus and by Thanksgiving, she's a free spirit. She's discovered that she is smart and she is independent. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying like, this is somebody who like necessarily becomes a drug addict, an alcoholic or a sex weirdo. But I am saying that like suddenly something that might start as simply as uh, nobody's here to do bed check and kiss me goodnight and to make sure that my homework is done or whatever, even the best stuff. I'm not, I'm not trying to do a she's leaving home thing here, uh, but I do think, and, and we don't have time to get into this tonight, but something that has obsessed me for years, I've talked about this a lot, but like, you know, before we even get into the whole like industry of education, that's just so depressing. The whole like industry of like how all of these things work. It, it's always bummed me out that I, I wish I could have I wish there were, okay, I'm I'm just going to say this with I statements, but I wish there had been a way for me to get some independence and some education and an opportunity to make mistakes in a relatively low stakes environment. I wish there's a dozen things like that the college can provide to different people in different situations. I I do continue to believe it's a huge bummer that that's going to cost you $55,000 a year. It's going to cost somebody $55,000 a year because you've, you know, got to feed Moloch or whatever. But like, there should be an opportunity to learn how to do your own laundry and pay rent on time without having to incur $250,000 of debt for somebody. It bums me out. It bums me out that there's not a, an equivalent of Rumspringa or similar, where like you get to go out and like figure out how to have a break from your parents, a break, break in this case, as in like, we're going to like, now it's my time to go out, wander the desert for 40 days, become my own person, right? Oh, that's not acrimonious and is not costly. Because I'll bet you dimes to donuts, a lot of the people who freak out in the first six months at a weird Florida liberal arts school, they probably they probably love their parents a lot, but they also need a way to become their own person. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's just, it sucks that this is all so, to this day, is still so all entwined in something that we call college. It's utterly bananas to me. You know, maybe it's similar to the role that, you know, joining the army had in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I don't know. But like, that's always bummed me out that like, those all have to be of a whole that you spend all of these years blowing through your teenage years. So you can get to where you get to go to a good school and become the person everybody thinks you should become. But like, you know, something's going to be your downfall and like, that shouldn't cost you six figures, cost somebody six figures to find out. And then to have the additional, the like, look at all the people wandering around today. Like who, who's going to go, who's going to go to like liberal arts school today like get all this, get all this debt on their own to then go into this job market, which is 
makes the job market of 1991 look positively, I mean, our bars looked rosy compared to where we are now. But like, I don't know, that just bums me out. There should be, I, I wish that America could evolve in a way that, or North America could evolve in a way where like we had the opportunity to, to become our own people and improve ourselves and learn to like do coin operated um, laundry and to live with a stranger. I mean, I don't think we stop often enough to look at how much crazy stuff is going to happen to an 18 year old walking into that building for the first time. And I, I just wish it weren't all so fraught. Yeah. In, in some respects, like I listening to you talk about this, like I, I agree. And obviously the cost of college, college is ridiculous and we'll probably get to that in a future episode when I start talking about kids things. Um, and you know, cripplingly slow. Uh, but like many of the things that happen as part of childhood, and I'm including college in this based on this, this silly pseudoscientific notion of your brain not being fully formed till you're 25. But my experience mm-hmm. is that 18 year olds are not yet fully baked, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, and, and so like, there are so many things that you have to there's go a, there's through. There's a reason they're not allowed to rent a car till they're 25. Right. There, there are so many things that you have to go through as part of your childhood and young adulthood that it would be a blessing if the things that you need to learn could be separated out cleanly. But very often, like timeline wise, you just got to do a whole bunch of things at once in terms of your growing and your education and your, you know, life skills. And it's like, it all happens at once and it would be better and easier. And again, setting aside the horrendous cost, which is a whole, and, and the sort of the academic industrial complex, which is its own evil, right? But even just like- But but also just the fact that at this point, the amount of knowable value you derive from keeping that institution propped up is, I think, dubious to say the least. And it's, yeah, and so we're actually, we're going for long here, so I want to wrap up like with the the end of chapter one, let's say, to talk Mm -hmm. about what you just talked about, which is like how much college costs and how that actually influenced, uh, you know, like where, where I ended up going. The, you know, I already talked about BU having computer engineering, but it's not like that was that BU is a very expensive school still is, was then is it private, is it a private school? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I didn't know anything about schools or what was expensive or what was not, but I could tell from discussions with my parents, again, that the state schools, why don't you look at those? Those seem like they're pretty good. Let's go visit them. Um, and BU was not like that. <laughs> um, and it was very, very expensive. And I think probably the the the, the two major reasons that I went aware is one, computer engineering, which is not like only BU had, but of all the schools I was looking at, it was the first one I saw that had. And two, unlike pretty much every other school that I had even looked at, BU would give you money for being smart. Every other school I looked at was like, oh, let's talk about financial aid. And then they see, oh, you have two professional parents who work. Hmm. Well, financial aid is not for you. It's basically saying need, like, need, need based versus merit yeah. based. And I, Quote, I you know, <laughs> my, my parents were upper middle class suburban, but like in the grand scheme of things, no need there, right? Mm-hmm. You can afford it if you spend all of your money on this thing. So, like, there was no financial aid was not a thing for me because I didn't need it, which is great and everything, but BU was really expensive, right? But the, the way BU works, probably still works this way, but work then was. The extremely rich people who could afford full tuition and maybe weren't super smart subsidized mm-hmm. it for everyone else. And then BU would Absolutely. give you merit-based scholarships by saying, hey, have you got good grades? BU's trying to make its reputation better. There's a lot of Peter and Paul relationships like that where under, for example, there's another one where undergrad basically funds masters in mm-hmm. uh, PhD programs. There's all kinds of things where like there's these cannon fodder kids, title, um, cannon fodder kids who end up subsidizing uh, a whole bunch of stuff, whether that's research or whatever it is. 
that's an interesting. I, ne- I never thought of it that particular way. Yeah, and even, as, even at that school, that's that's a thing. Yeah, and especially full, at full, a school, full full, uh, full rack rate. People paying rack rate mm-hmm. end up subsidizing people, even if it's not always need based. Right, and especially at a school, you know, Boston is a big college town, as they say. Um, especially in a school that has to be next to MIT and Harvard and all this other stuff, right? BU was then and probably still is now looking to burnish its reputation to say we are a quote unquote good school. Smart people come here. And so the way Mm -hmm. you get the smart people to come is not the really smart people, but not the valedictorians. But how about people like me who (laughs) were jealous of the valedictorians? Yeah, pretty good grades. John, you're smart. You're smart. Not like people say. Not like people say. (laughs) You can go to BU. Anyway. Um, so they gave me money. They literally said, come to this school. And because you have good SAT scores and got a pretty good grades. free scholarship. Yeah. They said, we, and we will pay this portion of your giant tuition. Uh, and my parents like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, oh, yes, please. Um, it was it was a, a not, you know, not insubstantial amount of money towards the giant, edu- you know, tuition. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And that kind of, that combined with the city of Boston being, you know, it's like, well, worst case scenario, there's lots of other schools there and it seems like a cool place to be. Um, that was it. Computer engineering. They gave me money. City of Boston. Not the best decision making process that was ever, could've, you know. Could have gone worse. Could have gone a lot worse. Yeah. No, I have no complaints, but I can tell you that, like, my decision making was not informed by anything reflected in the reality of going to be. Oh, like, no. I know. This is very, this is one of those sliding doors things where you're like, whoa, I really dodged a bullet on that one. Yeah, like I, and I, I'm telling this to my son, and I, not that we're going to talk about this week, but I was saying like, like I would tell him about all the academic reputations and, you know, rankings or whatever. And I just say, like, just so you know, how, quote unquote, good a school is has zero bearing on how much you will enjoy going there. Like not just like, oh, it's not just strictly correlated, it has zero bearing. It may be inversely correlated. <laughs> like, it's just do not like I want him to know, like, because <laughs> the one good thing that it has going for you is like, you know, if you have MIT and a degree from MIT, it probably helps you get your first job. But other than that. Oh don't, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, the money the yes. money thing was right. was a, was a factor. Like, and it's strange for me to think that because I just got done saying like, oh, I just assume my parents would pay for everything, but it did suddenly become a thing because despite the fact that my parents quote unquote technically could afford to send me to BU, it would have really, it would have really strained. Like, I mean, I forget what BU was back then. It was, it was like 1993. I think it was like. Fifty thousand dollars a year in nineteen ninety three. What are you? What? Or, or maybe what? it was. Maybe it was thirty. Maybe I'm misremembering. But like that it was, seems a, it was a really, little I mean, high. It was really, really expensive. And so like this, this merit based scholarship to BU was a very big factor in in me going there. It was what it got my parents on board because like they look at the school and it's like, is BU better than SUNY? Whatever? Nah, not probably not academically. So why are we paying all this money? And it's like. I don't want to go to upstate New York. I know what upstate New York is like. I'd rather go to Boston. So anyway, that's that's how my story ended up. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yours, yours, and you ended up going to the very selective school. Well, but you know, whenever we talk about these things, we learn we we learn this again at our peril. We eventually had to learn that in life, everything is all about the denominator. Where any number you throw around, well, it depends. Like that, now I know the numerator. Now tell me the denominator. Like in your case, like that, that is a percentage of what in terms of like, you know, ability and stuff like that. So in my case, um, I own, um, I applied to one college, um, and while I was in high school, um, I applied to one college, I got into one college and that one college was Rollins in Winter Park, which is, uh, one would not want to say anything unkind. It's, it's kind of a rich kid school, really good theater program. 
Um, but like this shows you like how dim my understanding of any of this stuff was and how poorly thought through every aspect of this was. But why why Rollins? Because my my mom's best friend Nancy, her three kids had gone there. And it was a really nice school near Orlando, was near home. Um but speaking of denominators, uh, so I got, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember the, oh, here's what I, what I can remember was I was very thrilled, very thrilled to be accepted because I was not a particularly distinguished high school student. And who knows what's as with where I would eventually go to college, who knows what strings got pulled to get me in there. Something that never would have occurred to me for 20 years. And now eventually now today, it just, it saddles me to think about like, I don't even know. I mean, apart from just being white, it's being white with, you know, you know, successful friends <laughs> that could help. I don't know, but like, I've wondered that. Why would they let me in that? That's nuts. Well, maybe it's because they wanted the money. And while we're talking about denominators, I was, uh, A, I was thrilled to get into that school because that's all I'd applied to. Didn't have any actual plan for how this would be taken care of, paid for, like whatever. But I was even more thrilled to get a, I don't think it was called a scholarship. I think it was just called a, might've been just called a grant, but they gave me money, like needs-based money. And we needs we needs that money, um, and I'm trying to remember if it was I I want to say on the low end it was two thousand, but I feel like it might have been as much as like five thousand um, to help cover the expenses. But then we ask ourselves, what is the denominator? Now, if memory serves, this is a private school for rich kids near Orlando. I think it was fourteen thousand dollars a year, even in 1985. And it was like, well, that went nowhere fast because. You know, uh, I'm really not smart because I hadn't even worked all that out with my mom and like what what that would mean. There was no plan for any of that. Spent the 30 bucks, wrote the essay. Hey, you've been accepted. And it's like, great, you know, <sighs> that that and uh, $40,000 will get me a college education. So anyway, that went precisely nowhere. and I didn't end up going there. But yeah, the crazy part about new college, and again, I was... I, 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 this dogs me more every couple minutes when I think about how my friend's parents must have had some role in getting me in there. But, you know, whatever. I, <laughs> I did try. I did pretty well considering where I came from. But a funny fact, uh, so New College was a very, New College nearly went under in the 70s. So the school started in, I think, 63, nearly went under in the 70s because, you know, it was, you know, nine to one student faculty ratio at that time, about 300 students at the whole school. Like, it was not really a money machine. Uh, long story short, it got kind of mm, bailed out. It got a, sort of acquired by the University of South Florida, uh, go Bulls. And uh, USF, which was a very much like a, uh, well, there's nothing I could say that won't sound snooty, but USF was like an okay, good, like commuter school in Tampa. But it was allowed to maintain its, totally maintain its own autonomy on almost everything. Like, it was a huge point of pride the new college was able to be its own thing inside of the Florida university system. Um, But yeah, the nutty part of it is that made it a state school. Right. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, my memory for everything, including numbers is not great, but if memory serves, I think, I think new college tuition, room and board, et cetera, exclusive of books and expenses. I think the, the basic, like you go to school and have a place to sleep, it was pretty definitely under six grand a year in state, which we found a way to put together with a Pell Grant and all the different things. But just for comparison, um, that's about the same price as what my 
mom and stepfather paid for me to go to private military school in seventh grade. Admiral Farragut Academy was around five grand a year for that horrible year that I was in military school. Just a little bit more than that, I got to go to a pretty okay good liberal arts school that I probably should not have gotten into. I still think about that a lot. So I was, I was trying to find uh, what, earlier on when I first mentioned Rollins. I, I can't find the exact number if it was 14,000, but yeah, Rollins is, is like 50 grand now. And I know that's been a lot of years and like at this point we're all overwhelmed by like how much, I mean, like when, when, when Madeline first started working at Stanford in, I think, 98 or so, she was at the Graduate School of Business, but Stanford undergrad in the late undergrad in the late 90s, I think was over 40. And that's the reason I balked a little bit at BU being that much in yeah, it was, 1993. It was, probably, it was probably closer to 30. I don't have well, a good record. Well, in any case, it. like I say, it all depends on the denominator. Like, For some it, people- It's the MSRP. We weren't paying that is the point. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not right. what we're paying. Yeah. The guy with the What's Ferrari- What's going to take for me to put you in this education yeah, today? The, the guy with, who's parking the Ferrari on Com Ave, he's paying the full, the, the full price, but we're not mm-hmm. paying the full price. And you can, yeah. and, and BU was stratified like that. It's setting aside the people with Ferraris, of which there were many, okay, which is part of how I got super into Ferraris, is seeing them all the time. You could look at a BU student and tell scholarship full price, scholarship full price, scholarship. Oh, I'm sure you could eyeball <laughs> just that. By, just by wardrobe, right? Just what did they live on campus or have their own apartment? <laughs> like that, sure, yeah, that type of thing. There's a certain bearing and gait that people have, but so we, we should bounce. But like my, I've told this story before, but it really it, more than ever it goes through my mind right now, especially after what what you said. Um, so I I kind of muddled through, you know, made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of stupid stuff, took too many short story classes, didn't take enough Shakespeare, didn't take a language, whatever. But the point is, I was I was perhaps improbably proud of myself for making it through new college and, you know, writing a thesis and whatever. I, I was, I, I, I was, I got a little dewy eyed because like, that's a real long way from, I felt like where I, where I sort of come from. It's not a huge deal to other people, but it was a big deal to me and my mom. And I was, I was really excited. And I had actually for the first time started to think a little bit about the future and the guy who I kind of featured heavily in my thesis was a, a guy who teaches, uh, who was teaching at the time at um, Johns Hopkins and I had some feelers out to like, I'd come in contact with him and there were feelers out to like, you know, maybe try and work something out where I could go there. But anyway, I, I do, I have a very specific recollection of meeting with my sponsor, my primary. So you have a committee, right? You've got like your sponsor. You all, at New College, you always have a sponsor, which is a professor who is like your, the person with whom you make an academic contract and they determine whether or not you've reached your academic contract, et cetera, et cetera. You have written evaluations, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, right, right before graduation, I'm full of beans, man. I'm walking out of this joint. Woohoo! Like, I read Absalom, Absalom. I rule. Like, I can talk about the wasteland, and it makes sense sometimes. And yay, for me. And I'm going to go to blah. And I was, I was talking to Mac Miller, my sponsor. And uh, and Mac was, boy, he was such a character. And uh, I was just saying, man, it's, it's so amazing. Like, it's going to be so great. Like, I've got this liberal arts education, man. It's going to be so great. And um, I'm paraphrasing from memory here from 1990, 89, 90. But he said something like, uh, yeah, well, he's like, you know, this is all bull, right? And I was like, like, which part of this is bull? Like, I worked really hard. He's like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, graduate school, all that kind of stuff. Like, it doesn't matter where you went to college. I was like, all right, genius. You went to Princeton. That worked out okay. He's like, yeah, but like, basically, you just got your ticket punched. That's what everybody does. You go to college, you get your ticket punched. 
And I think he said something, and I have romanticized this over the years, but the thing he said that I remember well enough for it to have stuck in my mind was, basically, people just want to know if you can put up with bull and finish projects on time. And I was like, dunk. <laughs> so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be talking a lot about semiotics out there. Like that's not going to come up a lot. I'm not going to impress chicks with my knowledge of Roland Barthes. This is the problem like, being no, in New no. College that this wasn't just in the air. Because if New College had an engineering school, those people would have been sure to inform you that everything you were learning was not applicable in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> that's why, you know what? I should go back and start a program. Maybe you and me, we could, we could, we could endow a chair. Would you endow a chair with me? Sure. I just thought my whole course will be like, unless you're going to become a professor, why are you bothering to learn this? Look to your left. Look to your right. <laughs> so next time, uh, standardized testing. And kids. Mm, well, well, we'll see. We'll see. Just get your ticket punched. That's really it. Thanks, Mac.